0: Welcome to EdTech Examined, a series about educational technology and what you need to know. I'm Eric Christensen. And I'm Chris Hans. This is Episode 2, published July 14th, 2020. Learning through Discord. Hey Chris, how's it going today? Good, how are you? Doing well. I'm doing well. It is a rainy day today in Calgary, so uh, it's kind of nice to be recording inside with you because I'm not missing the sunshine. This is good. Not for sure. We have quite a few things to talk about today. Uh, since the first episode, we're on our second episode now. Uh, so, do you want to just kick it off by going to some uh, relevant ed tech news?
1: Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, there was some uh, recently, there was some news uh, that uh, took place here at the University of Calgary, where some students got um, uh, disciplined for academic misconduct. Uh, anyways, yeah, so uh, don't know about the specifics of what happened there, but they um, uh, were collaborating using Discord, which is an online platform, and uh, had to uh, face the repercussions of going and sharing material.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting because there was, an I guess, this practice about sharing on discord. There was a warning letter, it seems like, and then I guess it continued and they were subsequently sent to academic uh, misconduct. And this came from the Calgary Herald. It's interesting, though, that there was an additional article from CBC where the journalists interviewed Elaine Eaton, who is an assistant professor at the University of Calgary, Uh, who specializes in academic integrity and it's an interesting response to this Calgary Herald article because it talks about how the COVID-19 situation kind of creates additional pressure so we have this uncertainty we have this online teaching environment or rapid move to online which is stressful enough as it is and of course students are pressured to hit a certain grade mark if they want to go to grad school things like that so Her response is really that students are not entirely to blame for this um, because of the way we do testing in this environment. I find it interesting because she brings up a couple of things, or this article brings up a couple of things we discussed in our last episode, meaning that this idea of traditional gymnasium proctored exams being transferred into an online environment uh, doesn't seem to work super well because students basically have access to everything online. They can use Google, they can share information on Discord, etc. So there's a call to get rid of some of those traditional style exams that we've translated into this online environment. And furthermore, this article from CBC talks about how things like webcams uh, create both privacy and equity concerns, which you pointed out last time, Chris, because of course not everybody can afford a webcam. They're very difficult to get right now. There's a big run on webcams as a result of the pandemic, but also this idea of privacy or letting someone look into your home. So there's kind of a call to get rid of these exams that are very quote unquote traditional.
1: Yeah, and I think it really comes down to, we got to rethink our assignments our exams, uh, you know, the overall delivery. uh, you know, chances are people are going to go and look at the resources. So, might as well just not even have that as an obstacle. Uh, so, let them go and it could be open book. Um, even uh, in terms of the exams that I have done over the last year, uh, I don't know how many every year, most of mine are open book in the first place. And just because it's open book doesn't mean that it's uh, that much easier. In fact, I think by having that extra information at their fingertips, it makes it even a little bit more challenging for them.
0: Yeah. And you pointed that out last time, because you kind of have to pick between uh, which resources are useful for your assignment. You can't read everything, even though it's open book, you can't be looking at, you can't have a hundred books in front of you and not have to do any preparatory work. So an open book exam isn't, you know, having a, an answer sheet in front of you. I also think, like you mentioned in our lapis last episode, that it's a lot more, comparable to the real world, because there is no closed proctored exams in the business world and real teaching. You have all of the information in front of you, so why not get used to that?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Okay, on to our office hours section. This is where we answer listener questions. So today's question is interesting, a little bit different, and it's a two-parter. So should I create a trailer for my upcoming courses and how do I do this? So, Chris, you have some experience creating trailers for your credit courses that you teach. Can you talk a little bit about why you do those trailers, what tools you use, and how long you make them?
1: Yeah. So, Eric, uh, actually, what happened is with the the pandemic, um, you know, there was a bunch of uh, resources that were made available, and you know, I always try to go and uh, try my best to even uh, just take part in some of these sessions. So one of the earlier sessions that I took at the Taylor Institute for Teaching and Learning, they actually had one of the takeaways that I had in terms of engaging students was uh, using a course trailer. So that was one thing that I've never done it before. And so I literally, this is the first time that I've ever actually done trailers. And um, what I used, uh, and it was one of the tools that was suggested in that session was uh, iMovie. And so if you're on the Apple platform, you basically have iMovie included as part of the OS, the operating system. So um, within the iMovie, uh, there's a section as soon as you open up, uh, you can go and create trailers and the trailers, they actually have um, templates already made up and so it's just a matter of picking the right template and so uh, in terms of those trailers i i didn't really think about lengthwise but they did say that you should probably go uh, maybe uh, envision it as maybe a two to four minute kind of trailer i think my trailers are about a minute or a little over a minute and that was simply because i used the actual templates in imovie and so some of the things that they suggested in that session is um, you know how would you re-envision your course capturing it in uh, two to four minutes. Uh, Some questions that you might wanna go and ask yourself is what is the actual significance of the course? Why is it being taught? Um, Looking at uh, actually planning an outline for the course trailer, doing a storyboard, organizing the content, the narrative uh, sequence of events, uh, experimenting with the the actual uh, uh, video uh, technology, the applications. And then obviously you have to go back and revisit uh, your intention, reflect on the process, record the trailer, um, look for feedback from other people, share that trailer with the students and then see what happens. But um, in my case, basically, uh, I I just kind of got into it. Once I got the idea, because again, I've never done it before. I went through all the templates, figured out which ones would make the most kind of sense. And so the first one I did was for my economics for business course that I teach and uh, it's kind of a dramatic um, audio that was in there and uh, uh, we'll share these um, these trailers um, as well and i think even this question it probably came up from uh, uh, people seeing me share the trailers on my linkedin or twitter or what have you but um, in any event i i took the description of the course and just used that and tried to figure out what would be the best imagery uh, in total, it probably only took me about three hours. And uh, the kind of interesting thing, I didn't, uh, for out of the four trailers that I've made, so i made three for courses, then I also did one for a, an online session that I uh, uh, facilitated or co-hosted with uh, a former VP of Netflix, uh, Gibson Biddle. Uh, but uh, three of the four, I actually did it on my phone. So I used my iPhone 11 Pro, uh, found the right kind of imagery that was like stock uh, imagery or what have you. In some cases I actually made the, I mean, again, this is where if you have graphic design abilities, I guess you can go and do that. So I created some of those images to put in there. Uh, The nice thing with iMovie is that you actually have already the storyboard kind of laid out and then it's just a matter of plopping in the text. But um, uh, especially for the Mount Royal one that I did, so I teach uh, uh, business communication. these students, they've never taken an online course before, whereas the other courses they were already going to be online delivery, and so um, I, I thought, it, let's just find something that, where even with the music, that you can evoke the. Uh, the kind of sentiment and what people want to walk away with. And so um, overall, my students really appreciate it. It's a nice way to kind of kick off the course. Um, so I uploaded it right away uh, when you're into your, whether it's Blackboard or D2L, so that's the first thing that you see. And um, uh, it's just kind of a nice, uh, if you think about it even with a movie, people usually they remember the beginning they remember the end, the middle can be just kind of blah. So to go and start off with a nice trailer to kick it off and just build up the momentum, I I think it's a nice uh, uh, little uh, uh, idea that you can do. And uh, again, like in my case, I would say it probably took about three hours of work. And so some of the uh, applications that you can use, so I, while I used iMovie, uh, some other ones that they suggest is uh, there's Videolicious, there's Adobe Spark Video, um, there's uh, Windows itself. If you're on PC, they have Window Movie Maker. And then you can also use YouTube, uh, where if you go to youtube.com slash capture. So uh, again, if there if this is something maybe that you're interested in, I mean, feel free. You can go and share your whatever you've come up with, and uh, we can go and uh, take a look, just share it on social media with us. Uh, but I think it's a, a very cool, uh, low uh, time intensive way of uh, just creating uh, something that can engage and evoke emotion in your students and energize them. So uh, that's why I did it. And I, I think I'll probably continue to do it. Um, uh, I haven't had a chance to do one for our EdTech examined yet, but uh, I'm planning on uh, creating one. And maybe what I'll do is actually even show the walkthrough of uh uh, creating that trailer uh, so that people can get an idea of how to go and do that
0: it's really interesting that you mention the apple tools because i think a lot of the time when you mention iMovie people think of the mac because it's been around for so long but like you said it's much more likely that people will have one of the following devices a mac an iphone or an iPad, even if they're not completely in the Apple ecosystem. And all of those devices have an iMovie platform that's actually quite powerful. So there's a lot of tools. I'd also point out that uh, Windows Movie Maker has advanced over the last few years. It's pretty solid. And Adobe Spark is often available through Adobe Suite through higher ed institutions. So it's not necessary to purchase a license for that. I love the idea that people don't remember the middle but they remember the beginning at the end it reminds me of an old quote about writing which is to start with a bang and leave them laughing so kind of a similar thing hopefully you can leave them laughing at the end of a course because you started with a bang so that's it for our office hours that's a great question about trailers Uh, of course we'll provide more information uh, about creating trailers for courses I think now it's probably worthwhile to go on to our tips. This week, I wanted to talk a little bit about password managers. So this is something that both Chris and I use. We've been using them for a long time, but I'm quite surprised at how many people haven't and they're incredibly valuable for education purposes, especially in teaching online and in just the current times that we live in. So first of all, what are they? Well, a password manager is a service that allows you to save your passwords and auto log you in to a site using the credentials that you've created. Uh, So it's kind of like a bookmarking service. Think of it as like a vault for your passwords. The great thing about password manager is that you only have to remember one complicated password to get into the password manager. You don't have to remember Uh, all these complicated passwords. And the benefit to that is that because it takes that pressure off having to remember, you're less inclined to repeat the same passwords for all these services that you're using so imagine you're teaching online in the fall you want to use a variety of tools perhaps online tools to create digital breakout rooms or whiteboards all sorts of cool stuff and things that we'll talk about as we get on in this podcast but ideally for each of these services you want to be creating a really strong long password so i create using lastpass this is the service that i use and i'll talk about that in a bit i actually create 40-character passwords that are alphanumeric with symbols, randomly generated, super super long, but I don't have to remember any of them. These password managers are available on all platforms, so they're available on Macs, Windows uh, computers, uh, you know, Android phones, iPhones, etc. Uh, that many of the mobile apps support logging into your password vault. Using biometrics, so a fingerprint reader or face unlock, in the case of Apple's newer iPhones. So one of the questions, though, Chris, and then you may want to chime in on this, I get I get a response, and they say, well, why shouldn't I just use the password manager built into Chrome or Firefox or something like that, or Apple Keychain?
1: Yeah, and I think that it just comes down to if there's a service that that's their focus, obviously your information is going to be that much better protected, it's going to be more secure. Whereas, uh, you know, if you go and share it uh, within your Apple keychain, yeah, it, it works with your Apple devices, but maybe not across other devices. And if you do need to log in somewhere, I mean, even uh, one thing that we did uh, talk about, like in terms of the browsers, and, and maybe it's a good uh, point right now to bring up, but uh, for myself, I, I only use Firefox. So I either use Firefox or Safari, but my main browser is Firefox, and so I've gotten the extension for LastPass. So, I, and again, I've been using LastPass for many years. Uh, I don't go and generate like 40-character complex uh, passwords like Eric does, but uh, uh, for some of them, what I, actually one uh, tool that I use is um, it's an online uh, website called DynoPass. and uh, so I, I use that. It, it usually takes like words that are memorable and interject some um, uh, letters and symbols in there so that's one kind of option just to even get inspiration when i am going and creating uh, passwords especially for ones that we need to go and log in for like for example at uh, mount royal or ufc uh, to get into our computers or into our emails those are ones that you will have to probably type up i mean you could store it into LastPass, but i typically those ones i can i just remember so there's certain ones i think Certain things that like, let's say, for example, banking, I don't know if I would go and store it even in LastPass or any of these kind of uh, options, because once somebody has that, they can maybe access your actual um, uh, cash and your bank account. So certain things maybe you might not want to go and include, but uh, uh, for the most part, for especially when we're looking at tools for educational purposes and who knows, you might uh, subscribe to a whole suite of tools, you don't want to go and memorize all those passwords. And uh, you know, uh, again, those ones are kind of low stakes. And so I think you can, again, you can go and use like these complex um, uh, password generators uh, that are built in right into the LastPass. And there's others, I mean, maybe you might want to touch on some of the other ones that you've investigated, Eric.
0: Yeah, there's a few that are are, are really valuable. So like you said, if you're using a browser, Uh, The Apple's keychain is actually pretty secure, but it's not cross-platform. Saving passwords in Firefox or Chrome is good, but I don't know if they're yet end-to-end encrypted. They might be, but even if they are, it still locks you into that browser environment. Uh, One of the problems is, is that a lot of people may have their favorite browser, like you and I use Firefox, Chris, but at their work computer, The browser may have been chosen for them a lot of work computers have either Chrome or Internet Explorer, especially if it's a Windows device. And that's kind of set up users are not able to install uh, an additional browser. So having a cross platform solution, whether it be cross browser or cross operating system is really valuable in terms of the best options that I would recommend. For free options, LastPass is a good one. It's been around for a long time. There has been debate about its security. I am under the impression that it's very good. It was bought by a company called LogMeIn, which doesn't have the best reputation, but so far they have been a pretty good steward of the service. They also have a paid option if you want to share things among your family. Another really well-regarded one is called Bitwarden. Bitwarden, I think, is a more open source. So you have the option to store it in their cloud or store passwords, I believe, on device. So that is a solid option. And then if you want a paid option uh, that has several more features, I would recommend 1Password. That's also very popular. With regards to all these, you can kind of, depending on the tier that you choose, you can choose to either save passwords in their cloud or save them in a service of your choosing. So I think for 1Password, you can save your password in your password list in Dropbox or something like that, which I've always found strange because that seems like the least secure option. I'd also recommend that anyone interested in a password manager, if you're working for higher education, take a look and see if your institution already has a license. It's very common that institutions will have KeyPass, which is another fairly decent option built in uh, to the computers on campus. That's also a cross platform solution. So, again, this is a pretty popular tool, highly recommended by IT services because their job is to keep people safe. So, see if your institution has one. If not, take a look at these privacy options or these free and paid options that I provided. If you're interested in in privacy-focused solutions, by the way, the way I found about Bitwarden was actually going to a website called privacytools.io, and they list a bunch of very private tools. Uh, So tools not from uh, major companies and stuff like that, things that tend to be more open source. So the next tech tip in this episode is two-factor authentication apps. So Chris is gonna talk a little bit about what two-factor authentication is, and some options
1: yeah thanks eric so uh in terms of uh you may have already heard of uh, the two-factor authentication and uh, this is where you're basically using uh, two devices to actually go and access and uh, validate uh, your login and so um, uh, one of the things a lot of these uh, post-secondary institutions now through their i.t system uh, especially with uh, break-ins or ransomware and other kind of issues that have propped it up um, they uh, have now implemented authenticators and so for example at the university of calgary uh, our passwords change every 30 days and it's mandatory to go and do that Um, i believe it's every 30 days i can't remember but every 30 days you have to use the authenticator to validate your login and so what you have to do is use the authenticator app on your smartphone it generates a random code that you then go and enter into your browser to access your email and the according applications so uh you know microsoft has their authenticator uh, actually even lastpass has an authenticator as well so we talked about with um, the actual uh, password manager so i mean that's something that you can go and enable Uh, Even I've noticed lately with Twitter, uh, because we had to go and set up these uh, accounts for just our social media, even for Twitter, it requires an authenticator if you enable that two-factor authentication on your account. And again, part of that was with uh, Jack Dorsey, the founder of Twitter, or one of the co-founders. He actually got hacked. And so if you think about it, if uh, some of these actual CEOs of companies, if they can be hacked, pretty much anybody you can be hacked. And so some of these tools will allow you to go and lessen the likelihood. Uh, I mean, anything, if somebody really wanted to, I'm sure uh, if you got anonymous on your case, they, they could probably go and log into and hack into anything. But uh, again, we're not going and doing anything uh, extraordinary. Uh, we just want to go and safeguard and take as many precautions as possible. And so that's why, you know, uh, using some of these authenticator tools is probably a good idea.
0: Yeah, authenticator tools are awesome. I mean, like you said, it's kind of uh, putting in almost two passwords, but except one is randomly generated all the time. I use two-factor authentication with an authenticator app for as many accounts as I possibly can. The two big ones, in addition to what Chris mentioned, so Microsoft has a great authenticator app, actually one of the best. LastPass also provides one. Uh, Google Authenticator is very, very common. That may be the most common. I use one called Authy. All of these are pretty much free. And then when you go to set it up, uh, in every account, social media or otherwise, that you want to set up two-factor authentication for, usually it's under the security settings in your account. There's usually a checkbox where you can say enable two-factor authentication. What you'll have to do is scan a QR code that's given to you, with a third party device. So an iPad or any tablet or a phone, and you're basically scanning that QR code into an authenticator app. And then that way, every time you log into that account, you not only have to put in a password, that could be something that you remembered, or it could be a password from your password manager that's auto-filled, but then you also have to put in that number as well, just like Chris said. One thing that I do wanna point out in terms of security, there's a big difference between using an authenticator app and getting a verification mode through text message. A lot of two-factor authentication isn't real two-factor insofar that rather than using one of these apps, which is on your phone, on device, is only secured and accessible to you, they send you a text message with a code that you have to put in. Text message, two-factor authentication is very, very easily spoofed and hacked. So if you can use an authenticator app instead of that, uh, I'd highly recommend it. Again, your institution may recommend a particular authenticator app. I think uh, my institution has some tips on how to do that. And that's pretty much what we have for this episode of EdTech Examined. Where can people reach you, Chris?
1: You can reach me on my website, which is Chris Hans, Chris with a K, so K-R-I-S-H-A-N-S dot C-A. My handle on Twitter is at Chris Hans.
0: And I'm Eric Christensen. You can reach me at ericchristensen.net. That's eric with a K. So E R I K C H R I S T I A N S E N dot net. Or you can reach me on Twitter at E G Christensen. I also blog about the mobile tech industry at techbytes. That's tech bytes dot net. Thanks very much, Chris. This has been fun. Yeah, thank you. For more info about EdTech Examined, visit edtechexamined.com. If you have tech questions for Chris and I, you can reach us at our email, hey at edtechexamined.com or on Twitter at edtechexamined.